0: Of belonging with myself, Anahi Dashgard. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, mentor, and inspiration, Judy Rebick. Judy's a seasoned feminist who is a leader in the pro-choice struggle here in Canada. She was president of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women from 1990 to '93. She's hosted her own political debate show on CBC, as well as continuing as a regular media commentator on feminist and social justice issues. She's a subject of the award-winning documentary Judy Versus Capitalism and author of six books, including the seminal book of the Canadian Women's Movement, 10,000 Roses, The Making of a Feminist Revolution. Judy and I talk about this remarkable history, as well as the necessary ability to work across our differences to bring about political change. We talk about the role of trauma in activist work, and how to rebuild a united movement for social change going forward enjoy today's episode welcome judy thank you for agreeing to jump on today
1: of course.
0: <laughs> I uh, was just saying how great your hair looks. So I want to just <laughs> say it again. So everybody that's listening to this can fully appreciate.
1: Thank you. Well, gray- you know, now gray- that like I went gray before it was fashionable. Now everybody's going gray. So
0: I haven't, I haven't died. I've got the grays coming in and I haven't died yet. I'm trying to let it be. Let it be. Yeah. Well, I, um, I want to get into talking about activism and responsibility and how we can create change, especially in this period of time. But I'm wondering if you can start off by just sharing highlights of your journey as a leading Canadian uh, feminist thought leader and starting perhaps with your move from New York and how your childhood colored your later choices
1: to become an activist. Well, um, I lived in New York till I was in Brooklyn till I was 10 and I came to Canada. we moved into North York, which became a Jewish community, but at that time it was more a farm community. So I moved from a place where everybody was Jewish, since we're talking about belonging, to a place where nobody was Jewish or hardly anybody. And there was a lot of there was actually a lot of anti-Semitism. And um probably the only time in my life that I experienced it in that way as a child. And uh, it didn't really bother me because, well, because I had grown up. I, I don't know. I, I hadn't grown up with it. So um, somehow it didn't bother me. Um, I was 10 years old and I was going to school on my bicycle. And it, and this girl called me Dirty Jew. My father was a scrapper, you know, so I got off my bike and I punched her. <clears throat> Nobody ever called me Dirty Jew again. <laughs> It's <laughs> so not that I'm recommending it, but it worked for me. My father also sexually abused me when I was younger. I think it stopped when we came to Canada. I'm pretty sure it did. I don't have any memories. Uh, so from age five to age 10. I think at about age eight, I uh, I freaked out and... Um, I didn't want to stay, alone. I told my mother, I don't want to sleep alone anymore, because my brother shared a room, and I had a room, so she moved me into my brother's room, and after that, he stopped, so when I was 15, I started to suffer real anxiety and um, at, camp, at camp, and a counselor helped me, and that's the last time I remember feeling that way, so I think I must have buried it. Uh, around 15, 16. It's also when I started to gain weight. And I think that's also when I started to bury my feelings. Um, And uh, as a result, I was very dissociated. So that meant that I didn't feel anxiety or fear at all. And that helped me make me a much better activist. Um, And so when I went to McGill, um, I sort of fell into activism because I was always different than other girls. Like I like to do what boys like to do better. Um, and, um, my, you know, I had two brothers and I had two male cousins that I was friends with. So I hung out with boys a lot mm-hmm. and I started to work on the McGill Daily. And that's where I became politicized because it was the 60s. That was 1965. So the beginning of the civil rights movement um, and, uh and the the beginning of some ideas of feminism. Um, And uh, yeah, my first beat was women's issues. I got politicized at at the McGill Daily and all the radicals on campus worked there. And so Mm -hmm. the first year or two that I was there, we were a small minority on campus, but by the last year, which was 66, 67, uh, McGill just exploded with demonstrations. And, you know, so yeah, so that's how I radicalized. And then
0: can I can I just uh, ask you, when you were involved in protests on campus, are you talking about feminist protests? This
1: no, not at all. Thing. I wasn't. A, I wasn't a feminist then I was talking about civil rights or anti Vietnam, which yeah, well, anti Vietnam and civil rights. Mm-hmm, Those yeah. are the two big issues, civil rights and anti Vietnam.
0: So what brought you into working on um, and organizing around women's issues, um, eventually becoming the president of the National Action Committee on the Status of
1: Women? Gloria Steinem, as some people refer to you. (laughs) Well, I came back to I went back to Toronto right after I graduated because I wanted a job in media and I couldn't get it in Quebec. And then I got a job in media and I decided I didn't want a job in media because I couldn't be radical and write for the media. Then I got involved in organizing alternate culture and youth culture when I went back to Toronto. And then um, I was attracted to the left. I was never attracted to feminism, per se, in those early days. I I think because, you know, a lot of feminism was anti-male and I wasn't anti-male at all. Like I said, some of my best friends were men. And uh, and so I didn't really understand uh, male oppression of women. I just thought women were most women just wanted to do what they did. I just didn't want to right? That's what I thought for a long time.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: once I became a Marxist, then I started to take uh, women's oppression more seriously, because there were women in the Marxist group who were strong feminists, like Varda Burst and Jackie Lark, and they had a big influence on me. So I really didn't become a feminist till after I became a Marxist, a revolutionary Marxist. Yeah. And then once I quit the RMG, which was the group that I was in, um, It was really an accident you know like i quit the group and i knew to be happy i had to be an act active and it so happened that really the day after i quit there was a meeting to talk about opening an illegal abortion clinic in toronto and i went to the meeting that's all i thought Mm -hmm. oh this this sounds cool and uh and because you know i've always had a big mouth i've always been articulate uh, Peter Cole, who uh, later became a public health doctor, he nominated me to be on the coordinating committee. Uh, he didn't know who I was uh, at all, right? Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But he just thought I was articulate and I was strong. And so they nominated me. And then the series of other accidents happened like, you know, Dr. Morgenthaler liked me when I met him and he asked me to be a spokesperson for the clinic. Mm. He liked He put it this way. I like your energy is the way you put it. So I became the spokesperson for the clinic. So I became really well-known very quickly. Not so much, people didn't know who I was, but they knew that I was working with Morgenthaler. And I, I think my politics as a feminist, as a socialist feminist, I developed while I was still in the group. I had I had gone to uh, IWD, International Women's Day Committee, like that started in Toronto in 1978. Mm-hmm. And the RMG was, the RMG women played a big role in starting that Mm -hmm. Uh, because we saw that there were a lot of a lot of feminist activism but it was all on issues kind of like it is now all focused on specific issues and that we had to have a way to show how powerful this movement was and so we decided to have an IWD march which by still going on today so it was really an important uh, initiative.
0: When did you become president of NAC where I know 1990. 1990. And so during your time as president of NAC
1: was when you won the legal struggle to um, have abortion be legalized. No, just before. It was before. Like, Abortion was legalized in 1988. That's when the Supreme Court decision was. And I became president of NAC in 1990. So, you know, it had an influence on me becoming president because, you know, I was really a radical, right? Like I I'm not saying I'm not now, but, you know, how the media saw me was as a real fighter because, well, not only had I led the pro-choice struggle, but I stood up, you know, against the guy with the garden shears who tried to kill Markenthaler and I stepped in front of the garden shears, right? So, like, people saw me as this sort of brave fighter, mm-hmm. and which is why the women who were leading NAC wanted me to run because they knew Mulroney had been elected and that. NAC was going to be in for the fight of its life so that's why they wanted me to run because they saw me as a fighter because mm-hmm. normally I wouldn't a person like me you know is sort of out there radical would never be president of NAC it was always like women who were you know politicians or you know mm-hmm. people like that so mm-hmm. academics never anybody like me never a grassroots activist so mm-hmm. um, yeah so that's how I became president of NAC
0: Well, I want to come back to some of the strategies of that pro-choice, pro-legalized abortion struggle. But one thing that you and I have in common, although we we were very different generations and ethnicities and, uh, you know, activist um, backgrounds is becoming very externally focused and becoming activists at a young age. I became an an activist in my early twenties at the expense of personal health and so for me during those those years it would you know I was it was more comfortable to be out there giving a speech than it was to be at home in the evening spending time with myself Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: feelings I would deal with feelings that I wasn't able to process in other ways through an eating disorder like binging on food and forcing myself to throw it up sometimes multiple times per day and I know for you and you write about this in your book Heroes in my head it, it was multiple personality disorder, different personalities coming up. And you, sometime during those years, you had to really reckon with the um, the multiple personality
1: disorders, part of that legacy of the early childhood abuse. Is that right? The interesting thing about my history is that it wasn't that activism took me away from dealing with my mental health issues. It actually brought me right into it because um mm-hmm. It was a way to get through it. Let's put it that way. I think it was Uh my way to get through it. Like I had to go through a really heavy, you know, therapy, right? Like first I had to get back in touch with feelings, realize that I didn't have, I was not in touch with my feelings, then get back in touch with the feelings. And then when I became president of NAC, like right before that, I started to have memories of the abuse. Okay. Like it was a few months before I. Like it was because it was the Montreal massacre that triggered the memories for me. And then I became overwhelmed with the memory. So I it's, I knew a woman from the pro-choice struggle who I knew was working with um, women who had been sexually abused as children. And this is not something that was ever talked about back then. There was only one book, one book about it called In My Father's House by Sylvia Fraser. When she had memories of her father abusing her, she had gone to a cabin and basically let herself go mad. And I knew I couldn't do that. So I so I uh not knowing what this involved, I just agreed to run for president of NAC because it made sense to me. And somehow I managed to pull it off. I don't know how, but I did. <laughs> and uh and my therapist was amazing, like alternate personalities start to come out and like they would just talk. Right. And it wasn't until I'd say years after that, that I started to integrate everything. I think that relationship
0: between trauma and activism is a really rich one and true for many people that choose activism or a change-making role. Um, And, I think my generation and ones coming after are even more literate than you and I had access to being around. Where is the line between personal feelings and trauma and between external strategy? And and I think that ability to discern is really important because when we don't have that ability to discern, what often happens in many activist communities, and I again, I know it was true of your your generation, certainly true of mine, was we take those feelings and we outsource them. And we attack each other, and we blame each other, and we—you know—nothing is ever good enough. No one is ever good enough, unless we're, you know, uh, touting the purest um, ideological activist um, analysis. You cannot belong
1: to the club. Yeah, I you think, think that's related to-, to trauma.
0: Absolutely, I do. I think when we start to integrate our own trauma and pain, and we process it, we're able to hold more compassion for ourselves, and from that, more compassion for others. It doesn't mean that we become less fierce in our politics. I think it enables us to become more effective in meeting our political goals yeah. because we're not treating everything with a sledgehammer. We can actually discern, do I need a sledgehammer? Or can I get, actually get away with a screwdriver here? Or perhaps right. even just a sponge is needed. And yeah. so we can <laughs> yeah. do it with more effectiveness. And yeah. Judy, I, I will say as your friend, you're one of the rare people I know that has continue to, you know, be effective in your activist role, because you've continued to integrate parts of yourself and, you know, grow. A lot of people, I think, get stuck in Mm -hmm. one way of being or doing things, and they become less and less effective in what they're doing over time.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I want to think about that. Like, for me, I think it was, I was tough you know, no question about it. I was tough. And I was easy, and I was quick to anger too. Once I started at NAC, even though I was, you know, I was doing therapy at the same time, I was very clear about what we call now diversity. I was very clear that we had to change the composition of NAC. And we had three Indigenous women on the executive. And um, first meeting, there was a woman from the Ontario rep who was you know, I thought she was a real flake. you know, I would have, like, just written her off, right? And in the middle of the meeting, she started to, you know, she, she ran out of the room crying, and I just ignored it, right? And But I noticed that the Indigenous women were upset. So I said, what's wrong? And they said, well, you know, in our meetings, like we pay attention to emotion, but it's okay. We're, you're, we're in your group now. So we'll adjust. So I said, no, but w- I want you to feel that this is your group. I mean, I knew enough to know that. And uh, so how would you change it? So they said, well, we would start a meeting by asking how everybody's doing now. This is no big deal. Like this is normal check in, right? But then that's 1990. Nobody would do something like that. Like, and if a white woman had said that, I would have said, oh, are you kidding? Come on, give me a break, you know, like that. But because the indigenous women were suggesting it and I wanted them to feel welcome, I said, well, how about you chair the meeting tomorrow? And Priscilla said to you, who I'm still friends with, she did chair. And we did do that. And, it tra- and I saw that it transformed the meeting. Mm -hmm. it was a much better meeting just what you're saying like that kind of you know anger that people had and so on it didn't happen right Mm -hmm. in the same way after september 11th um where middle
0: eastern racism and islamophobia kind of spiked in a way that you know has kind of been steady since then but was pretty startling um all this stuff washed up, up for me. And I looked at the community of people that I was connected to because at that point I was, as you know, one of the leading activists of the anti-corporate globalization movement in in Canada and sort of in those circles and um, just felt the complete lack of support. Um, And in fact felt, felt the attack energy Um, and just, and it was the reason I, I left I mean I think there's many paths to activism and it doesn't have to be one way ever but I think when activism becomes our way of dealing with
1: our own personal shit it can be dangerous to ourselves no, for sure that's yeah. for sure yeah that's yeah. for sure but like I say I, for me I don't think I did that I think it was the opposite actually I think activism helped me work out my stuff um but um you know maybe that was timing like I think the anger and the way in which we work out anger in groups is that's true but I think the purity stuff is really ideological I don't I don't think it's just coming from emotional wounds. I think it's coming from the way in which we've have no patience for people you know the way in which everybody has to agree or uh, we don't want anything to do with them sort of thing you know it, it, I'm not sure that's trauma-based although'm I'll think about it you know I really do feel like the, the impatience, the behaviors you're describing,
0: impatience, writing people off really quickly, jumping on people's words if they don't come out the right way, um, quick to judgment, uh, the inability, and you and I have talked about this, to build alliances with people that are even like one tiny millimeter over in their political beliefs, I think is very much based in undealt with grief, anger, rage, whether it's personal or because of systemic factors. I think as a society, what we're facing, which is potential apocalypse and end of the human species, whether it's through nuclear war or a climate disaster or, you know, has to come out somewhere. And I, I, I think it comes out in people's charged responses to each other often. Yeah. But again, I think that's changing, right? There's a lot of talk in, in movements, um, activist movements and groups that are active today Black Lives Matter is one example around mm-hmm. processing your emotions and being more embodied and being more kind of, you know, looking at self-care yeah. and people talk more openly about those things. Cause yeah, I think right. connected yeah. it to when we do this, we're actually more effective. Our relationships are stronger and we can be more effective together and yeah. pull together behind a common vision.
1: In the last few years, this is coming more and more to fore. Going back to what we were just talking about, how. Activists of your generation were often
0: very tough. You had to be. In my generation, it was, we were just starting to notice how that way of working was connected to tra- maybe undealt with trauma and psychological unhealthiness. And so we were, you know, that was starting to get named. A lot of activists I know left activism because of mental health, took her. Gomberg took his life. Yeah. yeah. There's others we could name that we both know that really struggled um, with that. And then in the upcoming generations, I think there's more literacy. However, the it's almost the pendulum has in some ways swung to the other extreme. And I think in this extreme focus on everything has now become trauma. Yeah. We can't disagree yeah. with one yeah. another.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a problem exactly. too. Yeah.
0: And one of the things you've spoken about that your generation, I think, did really well is you were able to work together across your differences because the goal was so paramount. So can you just talk a little bit about the um, pro-choice struggle and how you worked with us? Well,
1: yeah, we so in the pro-choice struggle, like we're up against really big odds, you know, because all all the governments were against, you know, all the parties are against what we were doing. Like, for example, Bob Ray, when he was leader of the NDP, spoke at a pro-choice rally in faith, you know, that was defending the Morgenthaler clinic and said that the NDP can't support the Morgenthaler clinic because it's illegal. Right. And got booed off the stage. And then we fought inside the NDP and we won their support for the Morgenthaler clinic, but it was a battle royale. So we didn't even have the support of the NDP. Right. We had a fight for support in the labor movement everywhere. We had a fight for support, but we did. And also in the, among women, on the other hand, um, we got support from very surprising people. So Um, conservative women actually were stronger allies than liberal women. This is an interesting fact of the early pro-choice struggle. Conservative party women, I'm talking about parties now, were more supportive of the pro-choice struggle than liberal party women. Yeah. And uh, in fact, Pat Carney, who was a leader of the conservative party and was um, the minister that Mulroney had lead the free trade fight, which was a fight back then. And she flew back to Ottawa and voted against Mulroney's recriminalization of the abor- of abortion and defeated it. And she lost her cabinet position because of it. That's how strongly pro-choice she was, that she gave up her career yeah. to oppose uh, the recriminalization of abortion. And so we had, and then we had a number of, you know, conservative women, some liberal women who were, you know, who thought I was crazy, right? Like would call me, it's a crazy radical, you know, but still supported us on the choice when when we needed money for the Morgenthaler defense fund, or, you know, we needed support for some other thing. And also NAC, the National Action Committee, when it was founded, in 1972, the liberals were trying to make it into a government advisory body. They're doing that now, by the way, with all the feminist groups. They're trying to, they're oh. trying to make them into government advisory bodies. You know, they're they're all afraid to do anything that would make the government mad. Right? Those of us who are more radical, mm-hmm. um, we, you know, we didn't want to ally with the conservative women against the liberals, but that's what we did. Because the conservative <laughs> women were for an autonomous women's group. And uh, they didn't trust the liberals and correctly so. And we hated these women. Like we didn't like them. We weren't friends with them. We didn't. Mm-hmm. But, but we knew we needed broad support. And, and we understood that like in a very deep way that the only way, you know, is the same with the anti-war stuff, you know. You'd be in a march and, you know, I'm going, ho, ho, ho Chi Minh, the Viet Cong are going to win. And there's people in the march who, like, think that's the most horrible thing they ever heard in their lives. They didn't want the Viet Cong to win. They just didn't want their son to go to war, right, in the States, you know. So Mm -hmm. all of the movements then, the civil rights movement being the same, Mm -hmm. were were broadly uniting in a broad way. Like, if you look at Martin Luther King, he'll say, you know, he wanted to include the Black Panthers and the more radical Black people in his movement. They mm-hmm. were a little less yeah. willing to be included, right? Well, and actually uh, so people, what people don't know is
0: Martin Luther King and, and um, um, Malcolm, X. Malcolm X became increasingly close and politically yeah. close to one another the older they got.
1: Yeah. Uh, so even though we were ferocious in our differences... We didn't stop working together because we didn't agree. And that's what's different now is that people don't want to have anything to do with other people they don't agree with. And uh, yeah, and it's impossible to win anything.
0: Cancel culture cancels out any progressive change. Oh my goodness. Um, How would you define belonging for yourself at this point in life, Judy? And -hmm. do you feel a sense of belonging now
1: for yourself? I think I belong in my family like I feel a strong sense of belonging with my family now um you know we struggle to try and create a recreate our family once when my parents were gone and you know I think we'd more or less succeed in doing that um but uh, do I feel like I belong in Canada you know do I belong and uh, I never feel like I belong like uh you know like You know, Lynn Gale, for example, is an indigenous woman who who does a lot of work around belonging in her own in her own way. So she she she'll speak and she says, you know, you have to go back to the land you come from. Well, I don't come from any land. Right. Like my Mm -hmm. my ancestors are nomads. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so and going back to the land is the problem with Israel. Right. Is they in their imagination in the Mm -hmm. Bible, they come from that land and therefore they colonize that land and got. Throughout and the I come world. from Iran. I can't go back to that land, especially not exactly. nowadays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, exactly. So and but, oh, speaking of Iran, I was going to mention Iran, because I do think that the revolutionary struggle that's happening there, we might learn some lesson because that is something that's happening totally from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. and it's sufficiently um, mm-hmm. turning things upside down. It's spreading now, mm-hmm. too. And so, but the yeah. problem is every example we've seen of that kind of revolution, that is a completely bottom up gets destroyed by the powers that be, right? So yeah. that's the problem, right? But anyway, um, yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that anymore. I, th- I feel like there's a community that supports, that's supportive of me. And so maybe that's where I belong, with mm-hmm. my friends. <laughs> yeah. Like me. Like you, <laughs> no, exactly, you know, like, when COVID hit, right, I was really in a crisis because I had no money and I couldn't live only on my pension if I wanted to stay living where I was living. And it was friends like you and other friends who helped me at that time to turn around my life because I had to really change some of the things that I was doing. And so I guess that's where I belong, you know, in that community of friends, mostly activists, but not all activists. And, um, Yeah, if I feel a sense of belonging, that's where it is. You know, what people call community, right? Like an intentional community. Yeah. I think we need that now. We do need to build those for sure. Yeah. Uh, But how they work, how that works to change the world, I'm not sure.
0: That's a good, (laughs) those are good last words to uh, end on and let folks uh, ruminate (laughs) around. I think maybe it gives us the fuel, but it's not the answer in and of itself. Yeah, Yeah,
1: it gives us the energy we need and the support we need, but how to actually change the system. Mm, I don't don't think that it it works that way.
0: Well, we are planting seeds. We're not going to solve it all today, but I am going to finish by saying uh, gratitude for you and your... Thanks. A lifetime of creating change. I mean, as a woman that immigrated to this country, I know I've benefited by your efforts throughout the years. I don't think that we take time to thank those who have gone before us enough. Well, thank you very much. You yes. often do it. <laughs> and I'm going to do it. I'm going to continue to do it. It's a debt that can I never be paid off. <laughs> and for folks listening, it. just thank the elders and the folks that have walked before us, we cannot give enough thanks. Thanks so much for joining today. Please feel free to share this episode. And you can also visit my website, A N N A H I D D A S H T G A R D A N N A H I D D A S H T G A R D.com where you can order my latest book, Bones of Belonging, where I dive deeper into themes we discussed here today. Be well and look forward to you joining next time.